The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you know I've been giving a series of talks on wisdom, and uh, maybe tonight will be the last one, maybe one more week, but last week uh, we mostly just talked about compassion, uh, question and answer session, and compassion as an expression of wisdom. And actually, it's not so easy to talk directly about what wisdom means in a Buddhist context. We can look, we can see the expression of wisdom, you know, as the experience of freedom or the quality of compassion, the quality of kindness, the quality of equanimity, quality of joy. This is one way we talk about wisdom is just these expressions of freedom or these expressions of ease. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, how wisdom expresses itself in life, what that looks like so that we can have a sense like, is this heart or is this mind expressing wisdom or is it expressing something else? And it would be nice to be able to quickly discern that. So instead of asking the question, am I wise? Well, we don't even need to, in a sense, ask that question. We can just sort of see what kind of thoughts, what sort of intentions, what sort of actions are manifesting in the moment. Are they, would we describe this expression as kindness? Would we describe it as compassion, as appreciative joy, as equanimity, or not? And it can be really helpful in that way. Another way of talking about wisdom is wisdom is the capacity to be intimate with things, with the moment as it is. So we can ask ourselves from our own experience, like tonight or even right now in this moment, you know, where is the heart that can be open? that can be sensitive or can be non-reactive to things as they are. Like right now, you know, we might say, well, let's see, is there a heart that can be open to this experience? And you notice, sometimes the mind will say something like, sometimes the mind will say something like, well, I can't be open to this experience because it's not important. But that exa that's exactly what's in the way. You know, like the critical mind, the analytical mind, it has ideas about what the moment should be like or what's worthy of being open to. But that's different than wisdom. Wisdom isn't splitting things into good or bad, this or that. It's just this. It's just this moment. This moment, like any moment, is appropriate to be open with, to be sensitive to. What would be the harm of being grounded, being present, being alive in this moment? What would be the reason to react or to deny or distract ourselves, to somehow be distant? 
And that's nice, just understanding that the importance of intimacy is really the essence of this path of mindfulness or this path of awakening. Developing the strength of mind, the skill and strength to show up, to be sensitive, to be awake. And, and to see that all of the beautiful expressions that we hear about, that we know are wholesome, they naturally arise out of that intimacy. So uh, instead of you know, having an agenda to be more compassionate in the world, which often, as I mentioned, I think in the previous weeks, leads to a kind of imitation. Well, I'm going to try to be really loving because I know it's, you know, it's a good thing. But we'll notice better if, if we practice, if we develop the strength and the skill to be open, to be intimate, we'll notice that when we're intimate with pain, with suffering, our suffering or somebody else's suffering, we'll notice ex the expression of compassion. It's not like we're trying to be compassionate, but if we really allow ourselves to be open to suffering, compassion is that experience of being intimate. We can't be intimate with what's difficult, with, with what's unbearable, with what's painful, without compassion being there. That is the expression of the heart that's close to what's difficult. So if you're ever really close to what's difficult and you don't feel compassionate, you might not be as close as you think you are. A lot of times we feel like we're close to suffering, but we're, we're in a stance, we're in a defensive stance. It's like we're close to suffering, but we don't want to be close to suffering, so we've created some barrier. And then we wonder why we can't be compassionate with this person or we can't be compassionate with ourselves. But we actually haven't gotten close yet. We're still at the place of learning how to feel what we feel, to see what we see, to be sensitive to what's going on. And see, a lot of the times in suffering, the case of suffering, in the case of what's difficult, is we feel like we have to explain it to ourselves in order to be close. But that's also a defensive maneuver. Like when we're around what's difficult, we don't need an explanation. I think it was the Wednesday group last week where we talked a lot about the particular scenario of meeting somebody by the side of the road asking for money. Was that people who were here last week? Was that Wednesday or Sunday night? Well, maybe, maybe last week. But anyway, it was definitely last week. I'm not sure it was Sunday or, Sunday or Wednesday, but it was Wednesday. Yeah, so we talked about that last week. And one of the interesting things in that discussion, many people had interesting things to say. One of the interesting things is it's not easy to be in that situation. They are trapped in our car by the side of the road where somebody's there asking for money. It's not easy to be in that situation and to really show up. I mean, it's relatively easy to show up with a strategy. In a way, we defend ourselves by having a strategy like not looking or the strategy of giving money. I mean, we, there are many different strategies. Giving money without looking, <laughs> giving money with looking, just looking. But if it's just a strategy that we have, we're using the strategy actually to protect ourselves from being intimate. 
like showing up without really knowing what we're going to do. Letting the response come out of the intimacy instead of using a, 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 like a strategy to, in a sense, protect us from having to show up, from having to just be present with that uncomfortable, unknowable situation. Because we don't really know who the person is. We don't really know what they're going to do with the money. This is actually a metaphor for so many experiences in life, maybe even every moment. You know, it's a, a bit of a mystery. Like we don't even know what's going to happen now in this room. And a lot of times we think we know. We use the expectations, the thoughts we have about the person we're with or the situation we're in as a way of uh, like a defense system in life. We live inside of our thoughts. So if we want to become a more loving and compassionate person, first and foremost, we have to learn how to be undefended, to really show up, to show up with not knowing. But even to understand what that experience is, not to lead with our ideas or concepts, but to lead with awareness or sensitivity, that capacity we all have to simply know how it is, just that raw, direct experience. And if you've had moments like that, you know how how strong the impulse is to fill in that space, you know, not to stay in that open, undefended, clear space, presence. So, you know, we're talking about, I'm talking about how wisdom expresses itself and saying that wisdom naturally expresses itself when there's a moment of intimacy. And so we can't define how wisdom is going to express itself because it's going to flow out of, naturally flow out of, a moment of being fully present, intimate. And how it expresses itself, how wisdom expresses itself, is defined by that moment of intimacy. And see, this is the great thing about wisdom. It has this creative nimbleness because it's coming out of the moment perfectly. It's the perfect arising you know, out of the moment. So we hear ourselves saying something that's appropriate or see ourselves doing something that's appropriate to the moment, not because we've planned it, not because we had a strategy, but because we have been, the heart has been present, relaxed, clear, uh, not confused by our impulse to be afraid. That doesn't mean there isn't fear, but the mind isn't confused by the fear. It's just another thing to be open or sensitive to, whatever emotion there, there is there. So in Buddhism, as I mentioned last week and again this week earlier, the Buddha talks about four emotions, the beautiful emotions, expressions of wisdom, like kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And then now let's think about these four natural, beautiful emotions. Let's think about them as a natural expression of a moment of intimacy. So the basic expression of friendliness or kindness, 
arises just whenever. I mean, this is the experience of intimacy. Intimacy is the experience of friendliness. You know, like when we're when we're with a friend, we feel like we don't have to put on airs. I mean, that's in a sense the definition of a friend. We don't have to pretend to be somebody other than who we are in the moment. And then if you just take this to the nth degree, you know, when we're intimate, we're, we have a, a friendly, affectionate relationship with the moment. We can't be aware, we can't be mindful in any moment without this friendly relationship with sensations, sounds, thoughts, emotions, sights, sounds, I guess I would have said that, or any of the other sense experiences. And then when that, the particular, the predominant experience of the moment is one of suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of another, then naturally out of that moment of intimacy will be a tenderness. Because just as we, like if it's happening to somebody else, we see somebody else who is confused or somebody else who's been hurt. And if we show up, the body mind is relaxed. The natural sensitivity of the body and mind is just present, just doing its job of knowing. And we see, you know, we see life isn't easy for this human being or for this creature. We, it's not like we have to try to connect with them as a suffering being. Compassion will naturally flow out of that. So compassion, in a Buddhist sense, is the natural expression of seeing suffering with wisdom. Now, there's things that masquerade as compassion, like pity. Because then we're not really meeting the suffering, but we're defending the suffering by feeling sorry for the person who's suffering, or feeling sorry for ourselves. It doesn't really matter if it's self or other. But the difference is compassion is an enlivening experience. Even though there's um, a real tenderness, it may even feel like our heart is breaking, the heart at the same time feels very alive in the experience of compassion. It's not a deadening feeling. Some of you, I'm sure, know this well. It can be actually surprising when something tragic is going on. We're close to some real tragedy, some great suffering like in the hospital or something. And we feel so alive, so awake, so enlivened, like buoyant in the experience. And yet our good friend or a parent or somebody is dying or suffering or whatever. And it can like we can be confused. Like I should I shouldn't be feeling so great. But what's great is the intimacy. It's like being real. So there's sadness, there's suffering, uh, or grieving maybe is a better word, but there's no grasping, there's no struggle with it. So it's experienced as a movement, a movement of grieving, a movement of sadness. But it's, it's not a weight. It's when we resist emotion that the heart's burden feels uh, weighed down. We struggle because emotions move. They're meant to move. So when we're intimate with suffering, then compassion is what we mean by that movement, that free movement of the heart, which feels great 
even though we may be grieving, even though we may be feeling very uh, connected to somebody's suffering. That's what compassion means. It means coming close to passion. Passion is suffering. And I think uh, Latin. And then when we come close to something beautiful, you know, we're going about our day or we're sitting in meditation, either way, and something beautiful arises, some beautiful thought, some beautiful sight, some beautiful sound, some beautiful smell. doesn't matter what it is, but there we are in that moment, heart undefended, open, clear, clearly recognizing that this sight is beautiful, this sound is beautiful, this thought is beautiful, this emotion is beautiful. And so what's the natural expression of a wise heart when it's intimate with something beautiful or good? What's joy? You know, we all wonder, well, how can I have more joy in life? Well, we have to simply learn two things. We have to learn how to be intimate, and we have to learn how to recognize what's beautiful. Because whenever the mind experiences is open or intimate with what's beautiful, joy is the natural, inevitable, unstoppable result. You couldn't stop joy from arising if the heart is really intimate with something beautiful. And of course, there's always beautiful things going on. It's not like, you know, you have to stumble upon, you know, the next Leonardo da Vinci creating some masterpiece in order to experience beauty. There's beauty everywhere. This is beautiful. The space is beautiful. The fact that this many people come on a Wednesday night is beautiful. These teachings, although so simple and pragmatic, are really beautiful. The fact that we got ourselves here is beautiful. The fact that we haven't left yet is beautiful. You know, there are a lot of beautiful things. People smiles right now. That's beautiful. You know, sometimes you can... If you're sensitive enough, you can just see somebody's body. And just seeing somebody's body, you can get an intuitive sense of the inevitable struggles that they've gone through in life. Just through the seeing the wrinkles, seeing how their body's being held. And you can be touched. That's beautiful, too. There's so many things that are beautiful. Even some of your sweaters are beautiful. <laughs> so it's just a matter of... of Letting the heart recognize what it can recognize. Being open. And not having preferences between being open to what's difficult, what's beautiful. But it, sometimes it's nice to make a real science out of it. Like this last couple of weeks, you know, we're in the guided meditation. I've been doing a little compassion practice just to help develop the skill and seeing what's difficult. So, you know, just feeling the body, but with this particular lens of noticing the body as a, a creature that's, you know, carrying the wounds of its life. You know, how many bumps, how many scrapes, how many years of holding tension. All of that is alive in the present moment when we open to the body. And if we really see the body as this creature doing its best, managing life as best it can, it moves the heart with compassion. Compassion begins to move. Same when we feel the heart, the sort of kind of psychic center of our being. 
you know, we are moved. And then when we bring other people to mind, or all beings to mind, we can be moved. But we could have done that same practice, but instead of tuning into the fragility, the vulnerability, the suffering of body, of the heart, of other beings, we could have tuned into the beauty and the joy, all the successes. You know, there are a lot of people in this room with grandchildren. That's a beautiful thing, you know. That's something we could find a lot of joy in, just knowing that some of you have children or grandchildren or nephews or nieces or cats or dogs that bring you a lot of happiness. And just knowing that could be a cause for my own happiness. Or some of you have had a good sit. Just tuning into that, like when we come out of the sit and just sort of gazing about the room and just getting a sense of the calmness that some people seem to radiate. Well, that, that can be a cause for joy in my heart, just to tune into that. <coughs> so you might want to make a real study or science out of learning how to recognize what's beautiful, what's wholesome, and to, then to learn how to really show up, just to be undefended, like to drop any need to explain it, to define it, but just to see it, or just to feel it, or just to be close to the simple beauty as it is. Not to want it, not to need it to last, because then you're not close. Then you're manipulating or uh, you're being strategic with what's beautiful. But just to let it be what it is. <coughs> or just moments, you know, when you're walking around and, and just feeling the warmth of the sun. It just noticing the beauty of that, that feeling. So, intimacy is basic friendliness. Intimacy with suffering is compassion. Intimacy with beauty is joy. And then equanimity, how is it that equanimity, this kind of profound impartiality or Evenness is another way. How does that arise? Well, again, it's about being intimate, but we're learning to tune into, with intimacy, we're learning to tune into the conditional nature of experience. So, for example, if you tend to be a really reactive person and you're interested in being more equanimous in life, then instead of pretending to be equanimous, we can practice being intimate with the conditional nature of things. So what does that mean, the conditional nature of things? It means, and this is a, really at the heart of Buddhist wisdom, equanimity. It means understanding things from a system's point of view. Normally, we don't, we're not even aware of this, but normally what we're doing all the time, literally moment by moment, so it's happening so frequency, we don't notice it. Normally we're projecting a sense of self and other all the time. So even here being in this room, we may not notice it, but there's a sense that I'm here with everybody else. Or, you know, I'm not a good meditator, or I am a good meditator, or I'm good having gotten myself here today, or I'm bad because I haven't been here in a long time. You know, So we have all of these views, these ideas moving in the mind, 
but they're kind of there, not noticed, because that constant selfing is so pervasive, we don't notice it anymore. So that's not a system's point of view. A system's point of view is understanding that everything that's known, everything that's being experienced, including all of that subtle mental commentary, that sort of subtle thinking, I guess we could say, all of this is just stuff being known. And everything that is being known, everything that's being seen and heard and thought and felt in terms of emotion and smelled and tasted and touched, everything that's being known is interdependent. It's arising interdependently or co-arising. So obviously what I'm thinking right now, like the particular expression of my mental activity right now, obviously it's connected to what I'm seeing and hearing and feeling, right? And what I'm feeling in my body tactically, tactically, and what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is also affected by what I'm thinking. It goes both ways. You can't, we can't actually pluck anything out. But from a non-systems point of view, we feel like it's totally appropriate to pluck things out. I mean, that's Corey over there. I've just plucked him out. But anything is dependent on everything else. This is a systems point of view. The more we start to see things as, uh, in terms of systems or process, the more the idea of good and bad starts to fall apart. I'm having a good life. I'm having a bad life. I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. This is a good center. This is a bad center. All of these ideas depend on sort of plucking things out. But when I see myself as, from a system's point of view, it's neither good nor bad. Because from a system's point of view, whatever I'm taking myself to be, it couldn't be other than what it is, right? From a system's point of view, the particular expression of my life, my mental activity, my physical experience right now, this is completely co-arising with everything else. How could it be other than what it is? It's, it doesn't make sense to apply some moral value as being good or bad. Does that make sense? <laughs> Good. So it doesn't make sense. <laughs> because from a system's point of view, everything is happening because of everything else. It's a natural, lawful unfolding. It's just a very complex, interdependent natural unfolding. I mean, just in a very simplistic way, you see that, well, what I am right now, this sort of particular expression of my mental activity, my physical experience right now, well, that's, of course, totally dependent on the particular uh, experiences that have come before, which is completely dependent on my genetics and completely dependent on everything you guys have done, because you're part of what my collection of experiences is made up of. And so to somehow pluck out somebody like the guy who shot those people at Fort Hood and say he's evil, or 
to say he's not evil. Either definition is way too simplistic from a system's point of view. All we can say from a system's point of view, from a, a kind of a Buddhist point of view, is that that was the natural unfolding of everything that came before and that was happening in that moment. It's, we're not, it's not saying it's, it was fine and we're not saying it was bad. We're just saying it was what it was. So we have a word in Buddhism. It's Dhamma. It's the way it is. And the way it is is sort of the lawful. But people always think when you say lawful that it's good. But when you're, when you're in a Buddhist point of view, it's not about good or bad. It's about the way it is. The more we notice, so this is at the philosophical point of view, it's just the same as I was saying with learning to be intimate with suffering, learning to be intimate with what's beautiful, learning to be intimate with the conditional nature, the interdependent systems or process nature of things, leads to a particular beautiful emotion, which is equanimity. Just like compassion comes from being intimate with what is difficult or suffering, and joy is the natural result of being intimate with what's beautiful, equanimity or peace is the natural expression of being intimate with the conditional nature of all things. So try this. When you go home tonight, and let's say you have a family at home, or you have a pet at home, partner at home, or a good friend at home. So you go home, and you start interacting with that person. And then just like learn, learn how to be intimate with that interrelating. So you're interrelating with that person. You're not just sort of being stiff and weird. You know, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> it's all interdependent. You just you're going to have the same conversation you have otherwise. It's more about how you're understanding what's the interrelating as opposed to how you're interrelating. So you're just understanding this interrelating like the one we're having right now. That this is an interrelating. And can we see this interrelating from a system's point of view? That whatever you're hearing, whatever you're seeing, whatever you're feeling in your body, whatever you're thinking, that this is the, the lawful, natural arising of everything that's happened before everything that's happening now. This is the natural expression of nature, the lawful expression of nature. And it's all happening on its own. And even the sense that I've got to do it, like I've got to be listening to Mark, or I've got to keep myself sitting up, even that sense of me doing something is the part of the lawful, natural unfolding of everything that's happening. This is so not our way of seeing the world, obviously. So if this seems easy, you're probably not understanding what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but you can, you can see how you can just begin to play with it. And I think that's not a bad word, to play with it. Now, it's a lot easier to begin with uh, opening to suffering and op opening to joy and just practicing generally being intimate. But then play with equanimity by seeing like it's like just a particular filter where you're, you're seeing everything as nature. Now, we can do this much more easily. You know, when you're outside, I, some of you probably have seen this. I guess it's making the rounds around the uh, world on YouTube 
this uh, cloud of starlings. I think it was in Denmark. Can anybody see this YouTube uh, YouTube video? Could be old. I don't know. It seemed like it was making the rounds. So I was assumed it's out recently. I think they guessed that it was like 300,000 starlings since some field in Denmark or northern Europe somewhere. And they, it's really beautiful. It's a couple of minutes of just this shape-shifting black mass, you know. And it's just amazing how it just moves. And you don't know how they don't avoid hitting each other. You know, it's just it's incredible, really. And there are many, many more ordinary expressions of this system's reality. But, like, how does that happen? How does that expression of nature happen? It's so complex. How could that possibly happen? like that. But it does. Well, we could say the exact same thing about a common ground community or the United States of America or the human population or a pack of dogs or you and your partner interrelating tonight. It's as much a natural uh, expression. Natural By natural, I mean it doesn't have a center. Just like fall has come in now. Is there a center to the season fall? We have no argument that it is fallout, right? And that soon winter will be here. But you know, it's a process. There's actually really no fall. It's just this natural, lawful unfolding that eventually will be winter and what we call spring and then summer and then fall. It doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a location. But you know, conventionally speaking, we think, well, it's fall. You know, we kind of, you know, and now it's winter. But it's not that at all. It's a centerless natural unfolding that involves everything. Like, where's the boundary of fall? Does it have a boundary? Where does fall end and something begin? So we create these things through language. We create concepts that give us the semblance that things are not a process system, but it's it's just a projection. You know, the the solidity our concepts give in terms of good and bad, me and you, that's an overlay, and an overlay that involves a lot of stress, a lot of uh, suffering. So, working with this with equanimity, learning to see the conditional nature of things. It's just a way to break through that. It's, one, it's really at the heart of uh, Buddhist wisdom. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to check in with each other. It'd be nice to hear from people just in terms of these four things I brought up tonight. How being intimate in general leads to the feeling, the experience of friendliness or what we call metta, loving kindness. Being intimate with what's difficult, with suffering, leads to compassion. Being mindful or intimate with joy, or what's beautiful rather, leads to joy, appreciative joy. Being intimate with the conditional nature leads to equanimity or peace. So any questions you have or experiences from your own life, your own sitting practice you'd like to share with the group? So what comes to mind? And please say your name if you decide to speak up. My name is Sharon, and yesterday I watched Oprah Winfrey and I, and she had a man who was uh, going to be, uh, he's on death row and he's going to die soon. And she had the uh, three 
the parents? Uncle. Mm-hmm. And watching this, and my heart is breaking. My heart is breaking for him. My heart was breaking for the children. Um, for, and I felt like I was one with the experience of this soul. It's the only these souls. And I felt it. All I can say is that when you said your heart is breaking, I felt at the same moment so alive and real mm-hmm. with the experience I was having as if I was right there with them. And that came to me when you were talking, how your heart can absolutely break and you feel like you're close to tears and yet there's an alive, there was an aliveness to my experience like I was one with all of these and a deep understanding of the process and the interdependency of it all yeah. without my even having the words for that. Yeah. It's like I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and notice a couple of things. Thanks so much, Sharon. That it sounds like you went beyond good and bad, right? That's a telltale sign that that the, where the practice has really benefited us. That the sense of good and bad drops away. And the other thing uh, that you mentioned that I think is so useful is we normally think when the heart breaks that it's dangerous. But it's not dangerous. Our heart has the capacity to keep breaking forever. And it only makes it stronger. It's See if this isn't true for you in your life. Breaking the heart is only a problem when we think it shouldn't be breaking. And then the resistance is actually destructive. But to just let our heart break can be really profound. And one example of uh, one of our leaders here at Common Ground, suddenly, uh, her sister suddenly died in a car accident, her best friend and sister. And uh, just, of course, total shock. And uh, we talked a few days after that, and she was describing the pain. And I said something like this to her, you know, and it's, of course, it's easy for me to say something like this, and it's a little scary for me to say something like this, even though I, I, I in a sense, know it's true. It's that somebody is in that state of shock and, and pain from having that kind of profound loss. But uh, weeks later, she came back and said how helpful that was, that, that she realized that... Uh, so what I, what I said to her is, when, when you really feel like you can't take it, just... Ask yourself authentically, can this be okay? Like, can the pain I'm feeling, the grief I'm feeling, can this be okay? Like, don't underestimate the capacity for the heart to feel pain and actually to be enlivened, to be awakened and to be healed because of that capacity to feel so deeply. That it's not what we superficially think that it's dangerous. It's somehow something's going to actually break. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Casey. I wanted to ask about how goodwill plays into the condition. Mm-hmm. At least I think a lot of goodwill and how that can decide for themselves what they're going to do in a situation. Mm-hmm. But conditionality still... Yeah. Well, maybe they coexist, and it's just a matter of perspective. 
When you look at something from one perspective, you know, you know those paintings you see. You know, you look one, you see the old lady. You look at it another way, you see a flock of geese or something like that. Isn't that what it is? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, what? It's a face? A vase. Oh, yeah. And then there's another one with a flock of geese, too. I forget what that one is. Thanks. But you get what I'm talking about. So I think that's the same thing. If we look at life one way, in Buddhism we see karma. Intentions matter. Cause and effect. You know, if I act out of a self-centered intention, I'm going to get negative results, un, uh, unwholesome results. If I act out of a, a more spacious perspective, good things flow from that. Intentions matter. Well, who do they matter to? You know, from a system's point of view, that all disappears. There's still karma, but it doesn't belong to anybody because it's just this web of causes and conditions, no center to it. So as lo when we look at life from the point of view of self, then there's free will. Then intentions matter. When we look at life from a system's point of view, then we're looking at life from a system's point of view. And again, you can't force this. It's more a matter of staying open to this. We don't want to be caught in the self-view. We want to hear these teachings and have it lead to a kind of investigation or reflection. And it's just a matter of point of view. So when there's a self-view, then this is relevant. Free will, intention matters. And we can well demonstrate. We demonstrate it all the time. But we don't want to be limited to that view. But we don't want to dismiss it either. There's a great phrase from Padmasambhava, this person who brought the Buddhism to Tibet about a thousand years ago. And uh, he has a statement, although my view, this is like wisdom view, although my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So it's like to play in both worlds, the relative and the absolute. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. Um, my name is Margaret. And um, one of the things that I find liberating is to um, have angry with somebody is to recognize that they are, you know, if they've done something to me that has been on suffering on their part, that they weren't, that if it was uh, a lack of attentiveness or something, it was still not. So what's liberating to me is to recognize that the stuff that makes me angry is just somebody else's. Somebody else's. Good, thanks. So the reason why this is so important, what you said, is that it, it's basically showing that in order to be intimate with anything, like in your example, suffering, we need that systems approach. Because that's just exactly what you described. So instead of seeing the person as the behavior or the behavior as the person, bad behavior, bad person, that would be a conventional point of view. But from a systems point of view, we don't just stop at the concept of the person. 
But it's like you look, you just keep looking and you see everything that's come before. You see the confusion right now that's part of the behavior. You see everything that's led to this moment and the confusion. And you see how it couldn't be other than it is. And then it's easy to have compassion for the person's unskillful actions. It doesn't mean we're confused. We see that these actions are unskillful. We see that they should be stopped. If it's our responsibility, we'll do what we can to stop them. But we don't need to hate the person because the behavior. You know, this is like uh, one, you know, education 101, you know, or parenting 101, where you don't judge the child for the negative behavior. You, you really address the behavior. Okay, this behavior is unacceptable. I totally get why you're doing it because you wouldn't do it if there weren't causes and conditions. But I'm going to be part of the stream of causes and conditions that are going to make you stop doing it because this behavior has to end. So you can be quite forceful in changing behaviors or changing the world. You know, there's a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice in the world. Just because we understand it from a systems point of view doesn't mean we're helpless. Actually, it really helps us understand how to participate when we understand the system's point of view. Because what we see immediately is hating is exactly what they're doing. Craving some other result is exactly what they're doing. We're going to get the same result. So we want to participate in a different way. And that's what's really powerful. And when you look back on history and people or groups that have affected huge change, generally speaking, they've they sort of stepped outside of the box. They brought a perspective that allowed the whole thing to change. That, uh, yeah, so then we can think about that in terms of relationships. Like when we see ourselves acting out repetitive patterns with a partner, you know, just, just step outside and say, honey, let's take a look at what's going on here. Is this familiar to you too? <laughs> well, yeah, it is that easy. It, it actually, well, maybe we should say it is that simple. But as we all know, when we're in a loop, we're in a loop, you know, and we're blinded by the loop. But stepping outside of the loop is not hard. That's not what's hard. But remembering that that's a possibility is hard. Having the wisdom or having the perspective that this reality that we think is going on is the end all. You know, we've talked, I forget your name now. Bob. Bob and I, or Bob's brought up uh, just strong feelings of like the injustice and the stupidity and the uh, corruption. corruption, the line in politics and people in power. And uh, it's so easy to be uh, disturbed by that and to feel justified in hating those people. I mean, I certainly feel that. But, uh, but the question is, can we step outside and see it in terms of the systems, like how those people got to be greedy, got to be corrupt because of causes and conditions? And then how do we participate in this world where people justify corruption? How do we participate? How do we get involved in a way that doesn't have hatred leading to hatred or anger leading to anger or the justification of closing our heart leading to the justification of closing our heart. Because people who are corrupt, the way they justify corruption, I'm assuming, 
is they close the heart. So the people they're screwing don't matter. So they've closed their heart off to those people. A lot like I close my heart off to those people who I see or think are corrupt. They're do, you know, so basically I'm doing exactly the same sort of emotional, running the same emotional tape that they're running. Now, I'm not saying that their action isn't more harmful than my action. I'm just saying that if we're going to change things, we have to change that response so that throwing people out of our hearts is not to be justified. There's got to be some other response and then let our actions, our words, flow from that other response in the heart. A little bit more time if other people have comments. Yeah, David? Yeah, let's see again. I think the past does inform the present, should, you know, in terms of what worked in the past, what didn't work. We want that to show up in the moment. The more relaxed we are, the more intimate we are in the moment, all of that information is more likely to come to the surface and likely to be seen clearly, you know, without favorites. And one of the things that I notice, I think is pretty common, is our first impulse isn't necessarily our wisest impulse. So. Even though it's good to bring strategies to a, to a situation ahead of time, we don't want to be stuck with the first strategy that comes to mind or the strategy we're leading with. You know, I think this might work. But to really sit there, I mean, it doesn't have to be more than a moment. So less than a second, but just to really show up in a moment. And in one moment, there could be a dozen different impulses, like how, what to do next, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. And the mind is so nimble, so quick, that in that moment, in a sense, we're sensing out the skillfulness of all those different impulses and assessing which one we're going to do. And so even though we might have a strong lead, like, I really think this is good, we don't want to be fixed to it. We want to really let the moment inform the choice. yeah, so I think that's the only difference, is not to be fixed. And a lot of times we fix ourselves to a particular strategy because we're afraid. You know, we're afraid to be open. We're afraid we're going to lose our resolve, you know, or we're afraid that uh, we're going to make a mistake. So Buddhism generally emphasizes, the Buddha generally emphasizes being clear and trusting clarity more than we trust our uh, our knowledge, I guess you could call it, our, our sort of ordinary intelligence, that what we think we know from the past. That, that It's not that that's not really valuable. I think it really is valuable. But that one of the things we learn is showing up is the most valuable tool. And the second most is everything we've learned from the past. So we really want both. And of course, showing up is how we best access everything that's happened in the past anyway. 
So it's not like we lose that by really showing up in the moment in that kind of undefended way, not defining the situation, you know, afraid that uh, we'll get taken advantage of if we don't have a strong strategy. But in feeling our vulnerability and in caring about our vulnerability, a strong, wise force will arise to take care of ourselves. We don't need to come tight, like protected. We can come undefended and know that we'll defend ourselves when we need to defend ourselves, when that's the appropriate response. Because what would be in the way of taking care of ourselves? You know, stepping, leaving the situation if that's what's required. Speaking strongly if that's what's required. So we have to trust that wisdom naturally arises when we're close to the situation. That we don't have to be afraid of not being wise, which is why we, we get attached to a particular strategy. But it takes time, I think, you know, for me and to trust that wisdom, that we could call it intuitive wisdom. But we'll trust it in sort of less charged places in our lives first and gain confidence there. And then as we gain confidence in less charged places, then we're going to trust it more when the situation is really charged. Thanks, David. Any quick comments to end the evening? Just a minute or so. If anybody has a closing thought for the group. Yeah, Casey. Feel, feel that feeling, you know, whatever, you know, feel the impulse to want to fix it, you know, fix our situation, not the other person, you know, that's really what it's about, like, be willing to feel our, to this exact situation, and then just trust that some response will come out of it, and it will either be a mess or it won't, but in either case we'll learn, you know, from that response. So let's leave it here, take a moment, let go of the words, take a deep breath perhaps as we settle in, connecting with our aspiration for our lives, not to be afraid. What do we want for this life? What is our deepest aspiration? And not to be afraid to aspire to be truly happy and peaceful and loving. And not to be afraid to aspire to live a life that contributes to the happiness and the peace and the freedom from suffering for all beings. What would be the harm of this aspiration? Just to feel that this is a beautiful aspiration. It's enlivening just to have this aspiration. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.